Well, I just want to see this morning if I am among friends. Raise your hand if you're already tired of the election. Would you just just acknowledge, right? It's good to be among friends. Uh, I don't know uh, if this is accurate or not, but it just seems like to me the campaigning is far more intense uh, this further out than it was a few years ago. But I do acknowledge that I'm probably not the best source of data on that because it's no secret that I have a complete disdain uh, for politics. I hate the fact that no one will admit that their viewpoint is wrong or at the very least needs to be looked at more thoroughly. Like I didn't watch a ton of the debates, but the little, like I just want someone to get up and say, you know what, I don't know the answer to that. Let me research and get back to you. That's totally fine. But everybody's, I know everything about everything. And so that just uh, rubs me the wrong way. I hate the fact there's blind uh, party loyalty where if you're a Democrat, then everything a Republican says is wrong. If you're a Republican, everything a Democrat says is wrong. I know some of you right now are sitting there thinking, that's true. That is true, right? Uh, but the two things that I hate the most are the following. I hate uh, that every administration blames their problems on the previous administration, like, I just wish that someone would get up and say, hey, listen, uh, I'm the commander-in-chief, but I'm human just like you, and, and we made a mistake. We did the best we could, but it didn't work out, and so we're going to back up and get a game, game plan, and so bear with us. And so I just, there's just very little of that. It's always what was them, and it was them, and therefore I'm cleaning up their mess. But here's what I hate the most. I hate the fact uh, how easily Christians are willing to forfeit their testimony with a lack of civil behavior towards other people in the arena of politics. Uh, they become so adamant about making a point that they forfeit their opportunity to make a difference. And what grieves me the most is that many of them are totally uh, fine with that, almost like they're martyrs for the truth. And so that's why I've said for years uh, that the greatest distraction to the gospel in the American church is politics. So if that truly is my rant and that's truly what I feel, then why are we uh, wrapping up a two-week miniseries called Politically Incorrect? Well, that's a great question, so, so here's the answer. I openly admit there was a little uh, play on words when we branded uh, this series to kind of pique people's interest. And so, uh, but we titled the series the way we did because we wanted to take these two messages uh, and highlight the fact that as Christ followers... If we're not careful, then some of the things that surround a political culture and a political climate, they can begin to creep into how we live out our faith, and then it becomes incorrect. It becomes inconsistent with the scriptures, and so that's why we've called it politically uh, incorrect. So last week, uh, Chris taught on that if we follow uh, the method of politics and strive for power and self-promotion in an effort to gain influence, we're living completely contrary to what Jesus modeled. Because Chris shared a verse last week that's in the Gospels that says this. It says they tried to seize Jesus by force and make him king, and he fled. Jesus said, no thank you, I'm not running. Right? And so the reality is Jesus said the path to serving uh, is, is the path to greatness. And so greatness is found in serving, not lobbying or campaigning for power. And so the reason we serve is to gain people's trust, to gain an audience for the gospel. And if you want things to turn around in a society, in a culture, listen, it doesn't happen by campaigning for power. It happens by serving people and winning them to Christ. And so that's what we preached last week. That was a good place for an amen. You missed it. So... So this week, so we talked about behavior last week. So, so this week, I want to focus on uh, beliefs a little bit because what you believe drives how you behave. 
And the reality is that the culture around us, politics, can even not only affect our behavior, it can affect our beliefs and our uh, convictions. So let me just uh, let me show this, all right? So if you agree that the political climate has given momentum to a culture obsessed with political correctness, would you just raise your hand? Some of you got two hands up. I don't know, first time in church. Congratulations, right? You're Pentecostal. You're welcome. So, and as a matter of fact... Uh, listen, let me just uh, share with me a little bit of totally my opinion. I think that's why uh, Trump is a popular candidate. Uh, there is a, a reaction to a culture where political correctness has gone wild, and so they see him as sometimes politically incorrect. And so some of you think it's an appropriate uh, correction to a politically correct culture. Some of you think he's an overcorrection, and you need to pray about that and decide that in November. And so that's not what we're here for this morning. But I think we would be naive to say, hey, listen, that's, that's part of the appeal with a candidate like that. So what does this have to do with Jesus and the Bible? How has a politically correct culture affected the way uh, that people follow Christ? Well, you know, here's how. Uh, Political correctness at its root has this idea. Everyone is right, and the only person that is wrong is the person who says someone else is wrong for what they believe. That's the heart of political correctness. Political correctness preaches uh, this gospel. Hey, that may be true for you, but it's not necessarily true for someone else. And if you disagree with them, you are intolerant. You are narrow-minded. You are politically incorrect. Now, Here's the problem with that as it relates to Christianity. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, hey, listen, when it comes to matters of eternal importance, heaven and hell, I'm right and everyone else is wrong. That's about as politically incorrect as you can make as a statement that comes out of the mouth of Jesus. Yes, the same Jesus that pictures so, petting lambs and sitting babies on his lap. That same Jesus said, hey, listen, when it comes to really things that are important, I'm right and everyone else Uh, is wrong, and it makes people around us in a politically correct culture furious. Like, like no one cares if you say, hey, listen, I'm going to heaven because I have a relationship with Jesus. Like, like nobody's bothered by that, but when you stay the other side of that coin, and if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you're not going to heaven. It makes people furious. Because that that, uh, statement flies in the face of a culture that says, hey, everyone is right and truth is relative. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 14 for a message titled, Jesus is right, everyone else is wrong. Put that in your politically correct pipe and smoke it. That's the subtitle of this message, all right? So as you're turning there, let me make a, uh, another little political observation. Some of you are like all geeked up because I never talk politics. You're like, yeah, finally, get on it, preacher, right? So let me just make a couple little observations. Many of you think that the current administration is responsible for a culture of political correctness, that they have introduced this new idea of tolerance. And, and you would point to the recent legalization of uh, gay marriage, and you would point to current issues surrounding unisex bathrooms and all those kind of things that are going on. But, but I'm going to argue that that shift towards a culture where truth is relative, everybody's right, everybody's in, you know, it's inclusive kind of a thing, I'm going to argue that shift of political correctness uh, gone wild started way before the current uh, administration. Matter of fact, uh, I've still got this book in my office. Several years ago, I read a book titled The New Tolerance. New Tolerance, and it was written by Josh McDowell and then uh, co-written by a guy named Bob Hosteller, who, by the way, lives right next door in Hamilton. And the thesis of the book uh, was this. It said, the definition of tolerance used to be, don't persecute me if you disagree. 
We don't have to agree that this is true and true. We don't have to agree about that. But what I'm asking under the banner of tolerance is, if you disagree, that's fine. Just don't persecute me for, for disagreeing with you. But they said the shift was happening in culture where the tolerance was now, if you don't agree with me, you are persecuting me. Is that not the culture we live in? It used to be, hey, we can disagree, just don't persecute me and each other. But now it's, if you don't agree with me, you're persecuting me. You're intolerant. You're a bigot. That's not politically correct. And so now we have a culture where disagreement equals hate. And some of you go, hey, that's right. And you know, that's, you know, just, uh, you know, that, that's happening recently. No, no, listen. I have that book in my office. I pulled it back out this week. That book was written in 1998. 18 years ago, evangelical Christian authors were sounding the alarm saying, hey, there is a huge cultural shift taking place where truth is no longer going to be objective with hard edges. It is going to be relative. And if you disagree with people on that, you're going to be labeled as intolerant or politically incorrect. And those words prove to be prophetic. So here we are in 2016, a culture dominated by political correctness, preaching a gospel from the mouth of Jesus that is incredibly politically incorrect. And as the pushback of a politically correct culture, has it had an effect on people and the gospel? Absolutely. Let me give you some research uh, this morning. Uh, the first one is a little bit older, but, but listen to this from 2008. And just listen how political correctness has crept into evangelical thinking in our churches. Uh, UPI report uh, made the following observation in 2008 said America remains a nation of believers. But a new survey finds most Americans don't feel their religion is the only way to eternal life. Even if their faith tradition teaches otherwise, the findings revealed in a survey of 35,000 adults can either be taken as a positive sign for growing religious tolerance or disturbing evidence that Americans dismiss or don't know fundamental teachings of their own faiths. Among the more startling numbers in the survey conducted last year by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life. Now, listen, this is, this is, this is incredible. 57% of evangelical church attenders, not, not, not some liberal, mainline, non-gospel preaching church that doesn't believe in the authority of Scripture, not some Unitarian church that doesn't believe anything about anything, 57% of evangelical church attenders survey said they believe many religions can lead to eternal life. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but here's what I do know. That's the majority. 57% is a majority. And the idea behind this is what, uh, what theologians and apologists have called the spoke theory. And the spoke theory is the idea you've got this wheel, and on the outer edge of the wheel is all of humanity, and in the center of that wheel, the hub of that, is God. And all of those spokes are just different paths to the same God. And say, so, hey, listen, you may be on the Jesus path, and that's totally cool, and you may be on the you know, Buddhism path, you may be on some enlightened path, and you're on a Hindu path, and a Judaism path, and a Muslim path, and all those things, but we're all just getting to the same God. That's what's behind that line of thinking. 2013, another survey said this, young American born-again believers are moving away from a biblically-centered worldview. Listen, listen to this. With only one in three affirming that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And so if you think that the politically correct culture is not trickling in to the, the beliefs and convictions of evangelical Christians, listen, you're just naive. 
And these are in churches that would claim to be evangelical preaching the Bible. Now, here's another uh, insightful uh, research, a little less scientific, but nonetheless insightful. So not too long ago, I was having a conversation with someone, this is a little over a year ago, and they had recently come to faith in Christ here at Liberty Heights. They openly come from a a very liberal uh, theological worldview, not political, but theological worldview. And so they had all kinds of questions. Even after they came to faith in Christ, they were always peppering me with these questions. And so, uh, and they were brand new Christians, so the Holy Spirit had yet to sand off kind of the rough edges of their personality, if you know what I mean. So, they're sitting there after church, and and I just, you know, they they said, hey, I've got a I've got to ask you a question. I don't remember what I taught that day. I've got to ask you a question. I said, yeah, go ahead. They said, do you really believe and does our church really teach that Jesus is the only way to heaven? I mean, listen, this is 2015. That is you know, so narrow and you know, so all these kinds of things. And I said, you know what? We absolutely believe that. And they sat there for a minute and they said, well, with all due respect, you do know that really pees people off, don't you? They didn't say peed. You know what I mean? Like they said, like, boom, they just let it out. And I just said, yeah, I do know that. In other words, what they're saying is, hey, listen, that's not politically correct. That that is inclusive or that is too exclusive in a culture of inclusivism. So, uh, so listen to this, uh, John chapter 14. Uh, Jesus makes a statement that in our culture is incredibly politically incorrect. And, and often for many people in culture, it is incredibly offensive. And so John chapter 14, let's pick up the conversation uh, in verse 1. We'll look down through verse 6. John chapter 14. It says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Just a little context. Jesus here is talking uh, to his disciples, and they know that he's, you know, he's saying, hey, listen, I'm not going to be here much longer, and, and here's what's going on. And they just, you know, just get totally freaked out, and so he's kind of speaking in a pastoral tone. And so that, that's the context. He says, uh, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house... There are many mansions or dwelling places in the original language. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And I love this. I referenced this back at Easter. And Thomas says, like, now listen, if you're there, and and can we just be honest? Like, sometimes Jesus talked in riddles. And people are listening, like, "I, I don't know what you're saying. But if you and I were sitting there, I, I'm, not like, I'm not the one raising my hand going, hey, Jesus, you're not making any sense. I'm just nodding my head. And when he walks away, I'm going, hey, what did, what did that mean? Not Thomas. Thomas like, excuse I got a question. So Thomas says in verse five, uh, to totally honest, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Chapter 14, the disciples were getting up a a close look at fear, and it wasn't pretty. They're about to face the darkest three days in history on the planet. Every prop, every anchor, every familiar landmark, the guiding star of Jesus is about to depart from them. Jesus would lie cold and still in death, his body riddled with wounds, his voice silent, his presence gone, his personality removed somewhere on the other side of the grave beyond their reach, and they began to panic. Because for the first time in a few years, Jesus was no longer going to be physically present with them. And so this is a very important passage theologically, but it started off as a conversation that was pastoral in nature. Say, listen, don't worry. 
We're going to see each other again. This is not, you know, goodbye. This is see you soon. And, and you don't have to wonder, like, like, how do we get to you and how do you find you? Because, listen, uh, I'm going to make it very, very clear on how we can be reconciled again. So he lays down these truths to assure them that the road to heaven where I'm going is clearly marked and very well lit. So you don't have to wonder if we'll see each other again. The road to heaven is not found in some back alley, you know, mysterious, hope you find Jesus into your life, kind of a hope so. It's not some down some wandering, winding path that hopefully you find enlightenment at. Listen, despite the preaching of the great prophets ACDC, there is a highway to heaven. There's not a stairway to heaven. I just want to acknowledge that, right? Some of you, that breaks your heart because that's your favorite hymn, and I, I appreciate that, all right? But Jesus said, hey, listen, Interstate 316 is wide open, there is a clear path to me. You don't have to wonder if we'll see each other again. So I appreciate the anxiety, but where I'm going, you can come to and we'll be reconciled. So this isn't goodbye. And then he makes this just incredible statement in verse six that is so intolerant, that is so narrow, that is so politically incorrect, but it's so true. And so I want you to see uh, in an exclusive gospel, uh, just two truths this morning. The first truth is this, from the mouth of Jesus, is that Jesus deserves equal faith uh, with the Father. Jesus deserves equal. In other words, Jesus is not up there proclaiming, hey, listen, it's like this big spoke, guys, and I'm one path, and I'm a good path, and you can choose me. No, no, Jesus said, hey, listen, you know the center where you're trying to get to? I'm the same. If faith in God is the same as faith in me, Jesus, look at verse one again when he said these uh, words. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. He makes two statements. Believe also uh, in me. Few people say the first verb is indicative. You, you believe in God. The second is imperative. In other words, an imperative in scripture is a command. Believe also in me. But most scholars translate it and say, hey, listen, both statements are imperatives. Jesus said, commands them, believe in God Believe in me. He makes no distinction because he said, I deserve equal faith with the Father. Now, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christ follower, listen, I'm glad you're here and you're just checking this thing out. And you may be thinking, you know what, all along the way, I don't know that Jesus was God. Like, I'm not, I'm not totally there. I'm still checking this out. That's totally fine. But you may be thinking, but I at least think he was a good dude, Right? Like he was moral and had some good teachings. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you looked at someone who got up and said, hey, I'm God. And you said, there's a good dude right there, right? Like if I got up this morning and you're a guest here and you're like, what, what, was, the, like, what, what was that church like? And I got up and at some point I said, guys, here's an announcement. I am God. Listen, you would, no one would walk out of here and go, you know what? That's a good dude. You would walk out and go, hey, they got a pass there. Dude is crazy. He's crazy handsome, but he's crazy too. And so the idea that Jesus was like, you know, Jesus was, hey, he's a good guy. Listen, if, he's, if he says I'm God and he's not, he's not a, good guy, a good guy, he's a lunatic. He's a liar. Theologian uh, Alexander McLaren said this, the peculiarity of his call to the world is believe in me. And if he said that or anything like it, then one of two things follows. Either he was wrong and he was a crazy enthusiast, only acquitted of blasphemy, 
because convicted of insanity, or else he was God manifest in the flesh. There are no options in between. And so Jesus, listen, Jesus closes the gap to all of that thinking that says, you know what, I don't know if he was God in the flesh, but I think he was a good dude, he was a good teacher, you know, some, some good example. Jesus said, no, 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 listen, I'm God. You believe in God, believe also in me, because faith in God is equal. And so Jesus closes the door for that to be a viable option for anyone that studies the scriptures with integrity. Jesus is the eternal son of God who created all things, who is in control of all the events surrounding his death, and you can trust him in whatever circumstances you are facing, because your faith in God is equal to faith in Jesus. So Jesus said, hey, listen, I'm God. No, no other prophet is making that claim. Other prophets from other world religions are saying, hey, listen, we can show you the path to God. Jesus said, hey, listen, I'm not showing you the path. I'm him. But every other founder, do you know this? Listen, I'm just going to sit in your notes. This is totally free. If you want some free wisdom, say amen. All right, that wasn't as loud as I hoped, but I'm going to go on anyway, all right? There are not, listen, every religion is not the same. There are only two world religions. Did you know that? Judaism is all about keeping the law. It's a, it's a religion of works. Buddhism is all about living a life so that you're reincarnated in a better life. It's all about works. Islam is all about pleasing an angry God. It's all about works. Hinduism, I don't even know what it's about. It's about nothing, but it's all about enlightenment, which you get to enlightenment through good works. All of these are religions based on works. Only Christianity is a religion based on grace. There are only two world religions. One says, keep working. The other says, it is finished. And so there are only two world religions. You're either trying to work your way to heaven or you're trusting in the finished work of the cross. And if you're trusting and being a good person to get to heaven, let me ask you a question you maybe never wrestled with. How good do you have to be? Like at what point do you lay down on your pillow and go, I crossed the finish line. Because I don't know about you, but when I get honest with myself and look in the mirror, I've got so much further to go. But thank God, the price has been paid. And so Jesus said, hey, listen, faith in God is equal to faith in me. I am God. And I know that's politically incorrect, and I know that's exclusive, but that's the exclusive claim of the gospel that Jesus makes. And so here's the second truth I want you to see in this passage is this. Jesus claims to be not only equal to God, Jesus claims to be the only true path to God. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I understand uh, this sounds very narrow. I, I, listen, I, I appreciate that struggle. But I want you to settle on the, with clarity this morning that Jesus himself makes a claim out of his mouth that is not religiously inclusive. It is a gospel that is exclusive. It is narrow. If you think Jesus was a good guy, and you know, if I think Jesus was walking the earth today, he would be all love and no judgment and you know, just kind and, and never overly firm. Let, let me ask you a question. How do you reconcile that with the Jesus of the gospels? And these words out of his mouth, it should totally jack up your theology if that's what you're holding on to in your version of Jesus. And when you read these words, listen, you, you have to whoa, Jesus wasn't tolerant in the way that I would expect him to be. Jesus was not politically correct. Jesus was not going around kissing babies and trying to make everyone happy. Jesus here drew clear lines about right paths and wrong paths. And that means that some people are on the right path and therefore others are on the wrong path. That means that some are right and others are wrong. Even if I hold to the just because it's true to you doesn't mean it's true to me. That's not what Jesus said in this. 
Look at verses 4 through 6 again. And where I go, you know, and the way you know, and Thomas, I love Thomas. Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? And Jesus makes this this just incredible statement. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if your version of Jesus is, you know, love at the expense of truth, never offend anyone, lamb petting, baby bouncing, eight pounds, six ounce, infant baby Jesus, and you just, you like, you like that, listen, you just have to reconcile based on this uh, truth that you've created a version of Jesus that you need him to be to make your worldview work. Because Jesus' claims here are narrow, they are exclusive, they are incredibly politically incorrect. The word way is emphasized as it's used repeatedly. Anytime you see something repeated in scripture over and over, it's for emphasis. The word way uh, is used in verse four, it's used in verse five, it's used in verse six, and it clearly, in the context, he's referring, listen, I'm the way to the Father. I am the way to heaven. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, hey, good news, I know the way. Jesus says, I don't know the way, I am the way. That's not what every prophet is proclaiming. They're proclaiming enlightenment to the path to God, and Jesus says, I I am God. I'm not showing you a path. I am the path. So Jesus said, I am the way. This is the sixth of Jesus' seven I am statements of the gospel. It's another claim to deity. Deity is simply a theological term, meaning God incarnate. Jesus is saying that we can have access to God only through him. Now, listen, uh, let me just give you some good news this morning. Did, Did you know this? Did you know that when you have a relationship with Jesus, you have direct access to the Father? You, you don't, have, listen, you don't, uh, some people come to me and say, oh, we really need you to pray for us, and I'm happy to pray for you. But listen, I don't have any special favor with God because I'm a pastor. You have direct access to the Father. First Timothy chapter 2 says this, there is but one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. So anytime through Jesus you want to go to the Father, you can go right to the Father. And so that's why it's never, I'm not a priest. You have a great high priest. His name is Jesus. He's interceding on your behalf. He can take you right up to the throne room of God. You don't have to go through me or any other pastor or any other priest. That's why don't ever call me, this is my priest. That is an inappropriate title for me. Your majesty is totally fine. Priest, not accurate. In the Old Testament, the only way for Jews to come to God was through the high priest who would enter the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and make intercession for the sins of the people. Now, this is not in the Bible. This is totally oral tradition. But oral tradition says this, that the high priest, one of the things they would do is they would uh, tie a rope around his waist and sew bells on the bottom of his garment. And the reason is because when he would go in and make intercession for the people, as long as they heard the bells ring, they know he was alive and making uh, intercession for the sins of the people. But once they heard the bells were no longer ringing, that means he had went in there in a casual way, in a common way, into the holy place where the presence of God came down. And if he went in there in a sinful, casual kind of way, the power and presence of God would would strike him dead and the bells were no longer ringing they would bring him back out let me give you some good news this morning i'm gonna get excited about it in a minute all right if you're following jesus here's the good news this morning the bells are still ringing they're still ringing 
Jesus says, listen, I am the way. Jesus also claimed, I'm the truth. He didn't say, I can teach you truth. He said, I am the truth. Jesus saying, I'm totally dependable. I'm the only true way of salvation. Then Jesus also claimed, I'm the life. He doesn't say, I can tell you how to have life. That's the role of a prophet proclaiming, here's the path. Here's the way to eternal life. What I'm doing this morning is saying, hey, here's the way to eternal life. What Jesus is saying, hey, listen, I am the life. John 5, 26, Jesus claimed for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. He's one with God. Jesus gives life to whom he wishes. John 5, 21, the three articles, the way, the truth, and the life imply the exclusivity of Christ's claims, but his Final statement clinches it in verse 6 when he says this, And no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, that claim confronts our postmodern, politically correct culture in two ways. First, it says there is an, the thing is absolute truth in the spiritual realm in a culture where truth is relative. Listen, truth doesn't have hard edges. And Jesus said, no, listen, there is absolute truth in the spiritual realm. I'm it. Second, Jesus says, I'm the only uh, absolute truth, and therefore all other ways are wrong. And that's where it rubs our culture wrong. Again, nobody's, listen, if you're, in, you're out there doing the Jesus thing, like most people aren't grieved. They're grieved by what they assume you stand for. Like there, there's grief in that. But they're really grieved when you say, and my way is the only way. They're like, you are such a bigot. You are so politically incorrect. That's the very thing that Jesus said here. Theologian author R.C. Sproul points out the notion that all religions are valid is logically impossible because if all religions are valid, then Christianity is valid. But Jesus said he's the only way to God which eliminates all other ways, so either he was right or he was wrong. Sproul concludes, if he was wrong, then Christianity has no validity at all. If he was right, there is no other way. Jesus himself says in John 14, 6, I, I, I'm the only way. Now listen, listen. one of the laws of, of logic is called the law of non-contradiction. What the law of non-contradiction says, hey, if a body of truth is proven to be true, then anything that contradicts that body of truth has to be false by the laws of logic. So what does that mean? Real simple, layman's terms. When Jesus said, I am the truth, that means everything else that opposes it has to be false. We apply that truth to science. We apply that truth to mathematics. We apply that truth to geological discoveries. We apply that truth in the spiritual realm. Jesus himself says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the only way. Jesus is the only way to heaven for several reasons all throughout Scripture. Listen, Jesus was chosen by God to be the Savior, 1 Peter 2. Jesus is the only one to have come down from heaven and returned there. John chapter 3. He's the only person to have lived a perfect, sinless life. Hebrews chapter 4. He's the only sacrifice for sin. 1 John chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 10. He alone fulfilled the law and the prophets. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. He's the only man to have conquered death forever. Hebrews chapter 2 says. He's the only mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy chapter 2. He's the only man whom God has exalted to the highest place. Philippians chapter 2. Jesus alone is uniquely, uniquely qualified to be the only path. Now, by the way, this is not the only time that Jesus made this claim in this passage. And some of you may be thinking, you know what? I think Jesus is being a little dramatic here. 
these guys are really upset, and so he, like, he just, you know, he's trying to comfort them. And I think he's, you know, like Jesus fasted a lot, and I think Jesus really just needed Snickers because he was not himself, right? And listen, I can appreciate that. I get hangry myself. I understand needing a snack. But Jesus said this over and over, not just here. Jesus presented himself as the object of faith in Matthew chapter 7. Now, did you know this? Your faith doesn't save you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. Because if what you strongly believe in is not true, then in the end, it will let you down. I can believe all I want. The moon is made of green cheese. That doesn't make it so just because I believe it so deeply. It's not your faith that saves. It's the object of your faith. And in Matthew 7, Jesus presented himself as the object of faith. John chapter 6, he said his words are life. John chapter 3, he promised that those who believe in him will have eternal life. John chapter 10, he said, I'm the gate of the sheep. In other words, the gate, I'm the entrance point. John chapter 6, I'm the bread of life. I am the resurrection, John chapter 11. So what he's saying is, I don't care how moral you are. I don't care how strong your faith in something is. I don't care how powerful or successful you are. If you don't come through Jesus, you don't end up at the Father's, what he's saying here. You say, well, that's just, a, that's just a narrow statement. Listen, truth is always exclusive. It's always dogmatic. Truth is always intolerant of non-truth. Otherwise, it would not be truth. The mathematical truth, two multiplied by two equals four. Now, that's, that's true uh, unless you're involved in common core. I just want to throw that out there, all right? Because I do get fired up about that. Like, listen, I've got three degrees I can't do fifth grade math at home. I'm angry about it, all right? Like, here's the right answer. Well, that, that's, that's, that may be the right answer, but that's not the right way. I don't care. That's the right answer. Tell your teacher I said that. I'm sharing a little too much, aren't I? Like a little, little bitterness is spilling out. Can you imagine a kid get, go, going to school? And writes on the teacher gets up and writes and says two plus two equals four and little Johnny stands up and says, "Not true. I wrote down two plus three equals four. You're in. You're a bigot. You're intolerant." No, you look at that little kid and go, "No, you're just dumb, <laughs> and you need a spanking." But that's the culture we live in. Yet Jesus makes a statement and says, hey, listen, I'm it. It's me or nothing. And I get that you're here. And for some of you, like if you're just honest, like, like you've got a friend who's deeply involved in some other faith tradition and you love them and they're devout and you just, you, like this just grieves your heart. You're like, oh, I just, and, just, and, and some of you are here like, like you're not a Christian. You would pretend to be because you're just like, you know what? I, I, that's just not fair. Can I just tell you this? Th th think about this. What could be fair? Everybody is welcome. Everybody gets in the same way. Everybody can meet the requirement. There's nothing fairer than that. Everybody is welcome. Everybody gets in the same way. Everybody can meet the requirement. So what do we do with all this? We're almost done. Listen, if you're here and you're a Christian, um, let me tell you, th th this should motivate you to missions. 
This, this, should, this should cause you to wear, you know, pour out your life like a drink offering, is what Paul said. Why? For the glory of God to take the gospel to the nations. It should cause you to go to heaven with your tongue hanging out and your pockets empty. Why? Because you put everything on the line for Jesus and the gospel because there is no salvation outside of him. Missions is not a program. It's not a week we do at church. It's the life that God has called us to live. And so we should be motivated to take the gospel to the nations. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, let me just share this with you. I got some good news this morning. Everybody's welcome. Everybody gets in the same way. Everybody can meet the requirements. You say, oh, you don't know the life I've lived. You don't know, everybody's welcome. Everybody gets in the same way. Everybody can meet the requirements. You don't know where I was at last night. Everybody's welcome. Everybody gets in the same way. Everybody can meet the requirements. You say, that is good news. That's right, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. And the path to heaven may not be well-traveled, but it is well-lit. So let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Because I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Everybody's welcome. Everybody gets in the same way. Everybody can meet the requirements, even you. Would you bow your head this morning? If you're here and you're not a Christian, because you think that you have to get your life in order or some spiritual things in order, or get your life up to, to come to Christ. Listen, Jesus said, I didn't come for the well, I came for the sick. Christ didn't die for holy people, Christ died for sinners. The Bible says that God loved us in that while we were in their sin, what does that mean? It means that before you could even get your life cleaned up, Christ died for you. So I've been involved in a lot of sin in my life. Listen, that's the whole point. The whole point of the gospel. And so if you're here and you've never accepted Christ or you're not even sure if you have, can I just to tell you this morning that today is the day of salvation for you? You don't have to walk down an aisle in a room full of people you don't know. You don't have to get baptized. You don't have to join a Baptist church. I'm telling you that right where you're at this morning, Jesus Christ will save you if you'll pray and ask him to. Would you pray right now and receive Jesus Christ as your savior? Say, God, I am sinful compared to Jesus. I need forgiveness of my sins. I want Jesus Christ to come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. Save me from my sins. Would you pray that right now in your seat? You can accept Christ right where you are. If you're here and you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, I'm gonna ask you to pray something that quite frankly is scary. I'm going to ask you to pray right now and say, God, I acknowledge this morning there is no salvation outside of Jesus. And so, God, wherever you want to send me to take the gospel, I'm available. 
Would you tell the Lord that this morning? Maybe across the street. It may be across the cubicle. It may be to Detroit this summer or Boston. It may be to the other side of the world. Would you tell the Lord right now, because there is no salvation outside of Jesus, I am available. Would you tell the Father this morning, God, break my heart over what breaks yours, lost people. Would you pray right now and ask God to put someone in your path this week that needs Jesus? Father, I I pray this morning that the words of Jesus would remind us that our hope is not who's in the white house, it's the one who's coming back riding a white horse. That, Father, we would be so burdened and broken, not by a political system, but by hearts that need Jesus. And, Father, help us to live out our faith in such a way that doesn't just make a point, it makes a difference. Help us to love people who don't agree with us, who don't look like us, who don't vote like us. Help us to love them because they're people that Christ died for. Give us a burden for the lost. Give us boldness to take Jesus across the street and around the world. God, give us courage to stand for the truth in a culture that says there is no truth. But let us do it in love. Whatever victories are won, whatever lives are changed, whatever souls are given to the kingdom, We lay those trophies at your feet because it's your grace that changes hearts. So help us to be agents of grace in a world that desperately needs grace. Help us to be a light in a dark culture. Pray all this in Jesus' name.